pray. Father, we sang it. We mean it because of Your grace that has caused us to see how great You are. In all creation and in salvation. Help me this morning say what I'm going to say. Help me teach well and clearly to the glory of your name. Amen. This is a special Sunday. It's a bittersweet Sunday because our family member, the little boy we watched grow up into a man, will be being shipped off tomorrow down to San Diego as a recruit in order to go through the Marine boot camp. Now many times when we think about those who serve in the United States military, we think about all these positives of discipline, structure, growing up opportunities, and securing college tuition and the future and those benefits which we should give them. But in essence, the United States Marine Corps is a sophisticated killing machine. That's why it exists. And war is hell. And war has been the story of the human race since the fall. But we're Christians. Those of us who have been awakened by the Holy Spirit to be born again and to come alive to faith in the Gospel. God's mercy has come upon us. We saw how wicked and evil we were and what we deserved, but Jesus Christ had come and He had taken away our sin by the sacrifice of Himself and the resurrection of the dead. And now... We have an eternal perspective on every human being in peacetime or in war, children or warriors. And we know that it is appointed for each human being to die once. And then comes the judgment about their eternity. And so, if we who are believers are ever in a position to have to take the life of another human being, and particularly an unbeliever, we do it with the cognizance of that ultimate reality. And that is heavy. And so Christians are never to flippantly approach the inevitable of war. We are to wrestle 
with the reality of it. Morally. We're to wrestle with the killing of another human being. In any circumstance, whether you're walking down Inglewood Boulevard as a bystander and you see a violent rape happening, will you intervene with a baseball bat or a stick? If you do, death might come. It's a huge issue. Or whether you are a domestic police officer as a Christian, or whether you are a soldier or a Marine on a foreign battlefield. And whether... Being in the military, you are actually in hand-to-hand combat or machine gun combat or you shoot artillery from a naval ship a few miles away or missiles from a fighter jet or if you are here in America at home playing on a video game with a drone taking photographs for intelligence so that others could pull the trigger and cause death. Here's the question. Should Jesus' people, Christians, ever endorse war? Should they ever volunteer themselves into military service where they may have to fight in battle and kill other human beings. This is an issue I don't think I've ever at least directly dealt with in a sermon. And so, this morning seems like as good a time as any if I'm ever going to tackle that topic. And so that's my plan. We're moving away from Ephesians this morning to deal with this. So let me just begin this way. As far as I can tell in the New Testament, it never directly deals with the moral issue in the sense of Paul writing a whole page on uh, when war is just, if it ever is, or if it's not. It's never directly dealt with that way. Therefore, every believer who wrestles with this has to come to their position based on rational thinking and biblical principles. This is not an issue that is of war and of military service that should not be, it should be with Christians taken seriously, to have great pause over it, and particularly because of seemingly, I say that very clearly, seemingly opposing biblical principles like love your enemies and like do justice. Okay. Now, let me start saying this. When, when I'm, I don't mean in Christendom as a whole. I don't mean in denominations that have nothing really to do with the gospel anymore. I don't mean with liberal Christians who don't believe that Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. I'm talking about there are Christians who love Jesus. 
They believe in the atonement of Christ. They love their Bibles. And they, like we, are doing their best to submit to the authority of Scripture. And yet, they oppose war. They oppose any violence at any time for any reason. They're called pacifists. And and it has nothing to do necessarily with cowardice at all. It has to do with principle. We all have things we hold to and principles that we believe. And we can be very honest with our conscience in that. Okay, so... Not only that, as some of us know now over this last year, there are some who are willing to die, willing to be killed in a war, but refuse to take the life of another. Like Desmond Doss in the recently portrayed story from World War II in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Here's where I am. Those who hold that position, who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I absolutely embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Though, be honest, I think their reasoning and their conclusion is wrong. And that is why, this morning, I can happily honor Pedro's service to us as a major in the United States Air Force. And Sergio's decision to enlist in the Marines and head it off to boot camp tomorrow. So let me start with a quote here from Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. He writes, The words of Jesus are unambiguous. Quote, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount, from, they form the basis of any Christian understanding of war and its morality. For the Christian, the standard is already set, and the goal is, is absolutely clear. We are to seek peace. The hard part comes in understanding how peace, even the partial and temporary cessation of war we call peace, how that peace can be achieved and established. Is war sometimes necessary for the making of peace. End quote. My answer to that question is yes, it is. There are times in this sinful world, this fallen, as Paul would call it, present evil age where the only means to peace is to defeat violently an aggressor, an enemy doing evil. 
For the last 1,500 years in church history, the deepest school of thought on dealing and wrestling with the morality of war is the just war tradition, all the way back to St. Augustine around the year 400 for the last 1,500 years. Yet, there's always been another doctrine. It's called pacifism. And it is the doctrine that declares war can never, ever be justified under any conditions. And not just war. No violence in any way can be justified. If you say, no, no, I hate war, but I, well, there, if you give me that example, then I think the person has to defend themselves. Well, then you're not a pacifist. You don't understand the doctrine. I view that position not only to be unbiblical by principle, but also dangerously naive. I am absolutely with every pacifist who abhors violence. Who hates that any human being is ever, ever killed by the hand of another human being. By a bullet, by a missile, by a rocket or anything. And I hope every Christian abhors that there is such a thing. And there is such a thing only because there is sin. And that's why such bloodshed exists. I abhor it also. But in the real world, which happens to be the only world we live in right now, evil and murder and genocides and pillaging and raping and the violent subjugation of one people over another people has been here since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden and it will remain with us until Jesus returns. And therefore, my conclusion is, in order to respect human life, sometimes it requires the taking of human life. Just picture for yourself a murderous, evil man over 50 feet, there's a big gully, you can't reach him here. He's on a little hill, he's lying down, and he is already shot to death four children in the schoolyard. He's reloading. And now, for my argument, I put into your hands a rifle. It's loaded, and you have him in your sights. And he's reloaded and he's lying down and you only have his head in view. And now he's ready to murder a few more eight-year-olds. What do you do? Do you pull the trigger and kill him? What is the morally right thing to do? Not in theory. We only have one situation, one real world right now. 
What is the morally right thing to do? Is the moral high ground to hold to a position, all killing is wrong, therefore I will not kill him. And thus not stop him from murdering these children of those parents. I answer, the morally right thing to do is to shoot him. A consistent pacifist answers, the morally right thing to do is to not shoot him. Okay, let me restate that again and add the realities to both positions. As a Christian, plunging someone into eternity, I argue that the morally right thing to do is to shoot him and thus to kill that man who has murdered these children and will murder more if I don't do it. And the pacifist answers, the right thing to do is to not shoot him and thus end up with more dead, innocent children. Pacifism fails to keep the peace. It fails to stop immoral violence. Any position we ever hold, decisions we make about lifestyle, I say this a lot of times here from this pulpit, ask yourself the question about all those kinds of things, what if everybody did or didn't do what I do? It's really clarifying. So, if everybody who is a Christian were pacifists, it would help contribute to more and more evil killing, wicked violence in this world. The goal of Nazi Germany back in the 30s and in the 40s was the violent overthrow, taking over free, democratic countries of Europe around itself in order to instill its Nazi racist doctrine and ultimately to want to do it to the whole world. And, of course, underlying that war mentality of their evil aggression was the desire of Hitler and the Nazis to mass murder every single Jewish person they could find, whether he or she was three years old or 93 or anywhere in between. And it was only because, only because of violent forces against Hitler's Germany that only six million Jews were systematically rounded up and murdered. There would have been many more if it were not for the moral violence of the Allied war machine against Germany. And today, I don't mean 
Islam as the religion as a whole. I mean a segment of that religion called Islamism with its doctrine of the murder of children, elderly, civilians alike who are infidels in order to take over whichever pieces of land and governments and property they can in order to instill and make Islamic law the law of the land over all peoples is a threat and very dangerous in the guise of particular organizations around the world like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Presently, the nation of Iran is very clear, very vocal about their desire now they just need the ability about their desire to eliminate the free democratic state of Israel from planet earth. Okay, this is the real world. And so what I'm going to say, I say it not flippantly, I say it thoughtfully. Only childlike, naive persons think that mere diplomacy or talking to ideologues, ideologically evil leaders and persons like Adolf Hitler or ISIS or the religious dogmatism of the Iranian regime, that they think we could talk them out of their evil intent of mass murdering is naive but instead only strong military forces are what could and what did stop Hitler's Germany. And only strong war machines, whether from Canada or Australia or Great Britain or the United States of America, are what will slow down and stop genocides. And, and the murder of thousands upon ten thousands of Muslim people by ISIS. Next month, eradicate the violent military forces of Israel. Get rid of them. And of the United States. They're gone next month. What will happen immediately is the next Jewish holocaust and the obliteration of the free state of Israel off this planet. That's reality. Now let's go to the Bible. To principle. Is it there? There it is. Romans 13, 1-5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no governing authority except from God. And those that exist here on planet earth have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. See, for rulers, they're not a terror 
to good conduct, but they are a terror to bad, evil conduct. Would you like to have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, then do what is good and you will receive the authority's approval. Because He, meaning the government authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do evil or wrong, then be afraid. Because the government authority does not bear the sword, the gun, the weapon, in vain or for nothing. For he, the government authority, with the power of violence and force, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And therefore, one must be in subjection, not only in order to avoid God's wrath coming through the violence of a state, but also for the sake of conscience. So here, God ordained human government in order to promote the good. For your good. To promote justice and to forcefully when need be, restrain evil. And to do it with the sword, with the missile, with the gun, with the handcuffs. God has ordained the violent kidnapping of people legally. I mean, you take them against their will. And oftentimes you must do it with force to apprehend the criminal who has just murdered or burglarized the house and to take them where they don't want to go called prison when they are convicted. That's God's doing. That's there. So by extension of that principle to restrain so that it doesn't get totally out of hand. Just trust me. And you watch it in Rwanda back in the 90s or any other place where governmental authority falls apart. You will have bloodshed like you cannot imagine in your wildest dreams. And so there is the power of guns and imprisonment and swords and tasers in order to restrain, to lessen the evilness of us, the humanity that God has created. And so by extension, in order to maintain the good, to maintain law and justice within its own borders, governments must provide a sufficient national defense against aggressors from outside their borders who would like to come in and do mayhem. Do injustice. Steal all our stuff. And kill all our families. And so Paul calls the government a servant. 
a minister of God for our good. When he said that, he meant the Roman government as a whole, and its hierarchical system down through provinces, etc. That's why God gives government, according to Paul, the power to work violence when need be. The sword. In order to enforce punishment, he says, on those who practice evil. 3 verse 4 again. For the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, you're on the wrong side of that, well then you should be afraid. For the government does not bear the power of the sword and gun, etc. in vain. For nothing. There's a purpose. For the government is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so that's why we have police departments. To, to deter, to intervene in a violent attack going on in the parking lot at the store over there. To intervene. I think there's someone who has just broken into that house and they show up and intervene in the burglary. And hopefully it happens peacefully, but oftentimes it doesn't because the criminal fights back. And thus the swords come out. Oh, so after the fact of Crimes like that, the judicial systems in countries, in cities, in states, they're set in order to put them before the judge, to have their defense, to be prosecuted. They're found guilty. They are taken against their will to serve their 15 years in a penitentiary. Okay. So Paul says. And so the same principle applies in the context of foreign burglaries, invaders, who come to kill, to steal, to destroy. And Paul says, the Roman government, the British government, the United States military has the power of the sword and it doesn't wield it in vain. Peter has the same mindset when he writes in 1 Peter 2.14, and to governors, meaning the emperor and going down the provinces and the hierarchical system gives to governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So, since God has ordained government with the use of violent weapons, restraint, against evil, for the good of its citizens. Therefore, it is not sinful, nor is it wrong for Christian persons to be involved in law enforcement in the local city. Or, nationally, in military service. You remember when some Military soldiers came up to John the Baptist and they said, well, okay, what must we do to bring forth fruits of repentance? How do we demonstrate that we're truly repenting? John did not say, well, it's obvious. You're a soldier. Soldiers, by definition, are in an evil institution at its core. Because they use force against other human beings. 
He didn't say that. He didn't say you have to get out of that because all violence or hurting of others or even killing them is, by its definition, sinful. He didn't say it. Now, wait, let's stop for a minute. Let's just take another... What would if he said... If we just took our own day, and abortions were happening then, but now the way we systematically do it, and some physicians decide, this is how I'm going to make my living, okay? And so you have an abortionist doctor, and John knows it. Oh, here we are. I'm an abortionist doctor. How do I show my repentance? Do you really think that John would not have addressed his occupation directly? You must stop that occupation and stop the murdering of little babies? Say, a group of prostitutes, not soldiers, come up to John the Baptist. We're prostitutes. How do we show our repentance? Do you think he would have said stuff? Like, oh, oh, okay, you've got to give the men a fair price, ladies. You've got to stop extorting from them. Of course not. He would have put the Ten Commandments on them. Then why didn't he do that with a soldier soldiering? But what he does tell them, do not use your occupation for evil. He assumed it's an honorable occupation. You've got some authority and power, and there are sinful temptations. So every one of you sinners before God, you better stop it if you're doing it. He told them, stop extorting money from people. Two, stop. Do not bear false witness against people. With your power. And then three, be content with your paychecks. He honored the profession. And he gave them three of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And don't covet. And go on your way soldiering. And so, when restraining evil is in your power, and we human beings choose to not restrain that evil when we have the ability to do so, we are condoning the evil of that rape happening in front of us now. And so whether it's the authority of a husband, whether it's the authority of a father over his family, whether it's the authority of a police officer in his duties for that city, or whether it's the authority of a soldier or a marine or an airman or a sailor, there are authorities, and therefore to not act against evil when it's in the power is to condone the evil. So, for instance, back in 1939, 40, 41, when Great Britain as a nation decided to take up violent arms, and to shoot down the German planes that day after day were bombing London, they were justified in so doing. When I talk about that kind of death, war, we don't mean all war. Germany 
was not just in their declaring war and invading countries. We're talking about when is it a just war? When is it a war of the protection of the innocent against evil aggressors of mayhem? We're not talking about aggression. We're talking about good and evil. And we're talking about, thus, when is it just to take up arms and to fight them off? And as believers, in the midst of considering that, in the midst of being citizens of any countries, in the midst of actually serving in the police department or serving in military service, we as Christians personally, and we would want our governments to always, we should demand in our own lives and there, to always, always, always seek peace through non-violent means whenever it's possible. That's what we should stand on. But then, you've got to know, there are times when the only means to achieve peace and protection of the innocent is to fight against violent, aggressive enemies. It has been said that the greatest force for peace in this world since the 1940s is the United States military. I agree with it. One of the most naive and irrational bumper stickers that's flying around the freeways everywhere is the one that says, War is not the answer. Why do I call it naive? Because you've got to have a question first. Oftentimes, to questions, war isn't the answer. We can deal with people with economic sanctions. They just cripple them and it works and no one has to get killed. It's awesome. But if the question is, how do we stop Adolf Hitler's Nazi war machine? Well, then the answer is war. And it's the only answer. And so, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who take each and every human being that may even die at the hands of the United States military, because we view everyone as made in the image of God, as those who are believers who know that there is the possibility for any sinner anywhere on this planet for salvation 
And it comes through the message, the gospel, the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if they die in warfare or in old age without Him, they will face judgment and justice upon them in condemnation forever. Go into this issue with the consciousness of that reality. But we have to be adults. And so we cannot avoid struggling with our conscience over the issue of the horrific reality of war. And as believers, whether serving as police officers or in the military, we must fear ever-loving war. We must fear ever wanting to seek the battle instead of peace without a battle. But we can't remain children in our thinking and bury our heads in the sand. So as I close, we would do really well to pay attention to these words from Albert Moeller. Quote, War is a demonstration of the utter sinfulness of sin. Christians must seek to establish and maintain our faltering and temporary efforts at peacemaking until our Lord comes to establish the only peace that endures. In this fallen world, we must honestly acknowledge that peacemaking will sometimes lead to war. In the final analysis, war is the worst option imaginable until it is the only option left. And therefore, to have standing, ready, trained troops in our five branches of the military or any other just country is necessary at all times. And therefore, We owe every person who chooses to serve us in the United States military a debt of gratitude and honor and support and prayers. And especially when they are our own here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, like Pedro and like Sergio. How much more shall we pray for them? Let's do it. Father, as each of us wrestle 
as adults with the world we really live in. In a broken world that groans waiting for the redemption of the sons of God to appear in the resurrection. Oh, may we be peacemakers. May we be those who seek to do justice and hate injustice. And we do lift up our forces. We lift up our leaders. We lift up our president to never fight, shoot, and to kill when the goal of peace can be done without such a thing. We thank you for the service of Pedro. And we thank you for the coming service of Sergio. You are good and you are gracious. We thank you. Amen. So now I want Sergio and your two sisters and your mom and your dad probably come up here sit on the front row because in a couple minutes we as a congregation are going to pray for going to lay hands on Sergio she's off to boot camp tomorrow and there's your dad he's totally prepared again precious one Where's your mother? I, I got eyewitnesses on that one, right? Just enjoy the music. That's okay. You are a great real estate agent, by the way. <laughs> All righty. This is a major transition in your life, Serge. You already know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you saw the boot camp video too. I watched a lot of 
Okay, all right. I said at the beginning of my sermon, this is a bittersweet Sunday. It is sweet because what you will be doing for the next few years of your life is honorable. It is good. It is needed. The few, the proud, the Marines. It's bitter because that means you're leaving us and that means you leave a hole in us, your church family. I've known you since you were born. I've watched you grow up through your childhood years. I was there when you buried three grandparents. You started coming to this church with your family when you were seven years old. You became a member of Sovereign Grace Fellowship when you were 16 or 17. But what some people probably don't know, Serge, is how you have faithfully served these people, this church, for 11 straight years. For a number of those years, your arrival time every Sunday morning would be at 7.45 a.m. Some of these people still had another two hours of sleep. You're here for setup and after church for takedown. The last few years since we moved here, our time is 8 to 8.10 every Sunday morning. And when we made this transition to this campus a little over four years ago, you began overseeing the entire setup and takedown thing because your work ethic over the years and the young man you became told me he's the man. That's just that you can do it. You can give it to him because you were and you have been a rock of faithfulness that I needed to entrust such things to. And you have served us well. The motto of the Marine Corps is Semper Fi. Always faithful. And that has been the motto of the way you have served us at Sovereign Grace Fellowship for the last 11 straight years. I think that's more than half of your life at this point. And so on behalf of all of us here, those who are no longer with us, we thank you. And so I want to close by exhorting you with these words from the Apostle Paul. Colossians 1. And you, Serge, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but He has now reconciled you in the body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before Him if indeed you continue in the faith. If you continue steadfast and stable and not shifting away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard. And so I say to you, as your uncle, as your pastor, and as your friend, in all the trials, in all the real temptations that do lay ahead of you, in all the worldliness that will vie for your soul, continue in the faith. Be steadfast as a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ who is sweeter than anything this world will offer. Amen. Come on up. Family, this moment... That means all of you. Come on up here. Come on up here. Give me a mic. It's already on. Okay. It is on. Um, yeah, I didn't know um, if I should say anything. Um, to surge um, today. Uh, I'm saying oh, a lot. I hate it when people do that. Especially on the radio. <sighs> because he's just heard everything I think, everything I desire. All three of the kids have. From Trish and I, we're just like, like these relentless human beings that often drove these kids that are now adults crazy. It's called parenting. Yes. <laughs> And uh, this week especially has been very difficult. We've had a few outbursts of wrath. Uh, and I'm the key culprit and I had to repent. I dishonored my son and how I spoke with him. Uh, and he was gracious enough to forgive me. But I know I've wounded the four of these right here. With uh, my wrath that I hate most of the time. So anyway, I didn't know if uh, I needed to say anything else, and I talked to Joe, and, and so he goes, I really think you need to do this. So I'm going to do this. Uh, when Serge was born, we were in church. You can't hear me? Okay. Oh, okay. Um, we, um, I had him in my arms at Hope Chapel in San Pedro, right next to Ronnie and Tony Luros, and they had Andrew in their arms. And I looked at Andrew and I looked at Serge and a verse came to me about my son. And so I wrote him a poem. This was a long time ago. And it's called My Son. When I look at you, I see me. And then I ask, could it really be? It's in your smile. It's in your hair. It's in your nose that often flares. My son, when your frame I calmly ponder, the future's filled with joy 
and wonder. It's in your arms, it's in your hands, it's in your legs that strongly stand. My son, when I think about tomorrow, I know there will be happiness, happiness mixed with sorrow. It's in the no, it's in the yes, it's in the times we'll simply guess. My son, there are many who will envy you because you'll be simply you. Please remember and don't forget, your life on earth is all you get. So live for him who died for you, the one who bled, the one who's true. His name is Jesus. He's my best friend. He'll always be there until the end. And so as your dad and high priest of this home, I charge you to be salt and light and don't ever back down when you know what's right. Ever. And if that time means your life for someone else, then gladly give it. I love you. Hi. So I love this great land, as you know. And I often looked at soldiers in the military very proud. Always loving what they do for this great country. And I remember I never wanted to push it on you. But every once in a very great while I would ask you, do you want to go in the military? You'd say no. Okay. And on I'd go. Probably three times since you were growing up in high school, maybe I asked you that. And I always did that very carefully because I knew that the cost could be great. There are some who go, and life goes well, and there are some that go, and not so well. So it would always have to be your decision, and I knew that. And also, some come back, and it's really difficult. And again, that would have to be your decision. So when you said you wanted to go in the military, I was like, really? Okay. And uh, I wasn't going to speak today. Because I didn't think I could. But I didn't want you to leave without knowing how proud I am of you. It recently occurred to me that you're very courageous. That sounds weird, considering you want to be a cop and everything. But I realized that it's a mature man that is willing to take on the responsibility of others, carry the burden of others, to protect and to serve. And you were willing to do that as a police officer. And now you're willing to do it as a Marine, as a soldier of our great country. And so I just want you to know that I honor you today. I really respect you for what you're doing. And I send you in the arms of God. You know, the Father 
gave you this son. What a great example. And I, as a mom, like many other moms that have given, some have given their lives, their sons will never return home. I don't know the outcome. Well, we'll be in glory together forever as we're sojourners through this life. And whatever God has for you, I entrust you to him, son. And I really thank you for serving and making America great because it is the best land. I love you. This is being recorded, right? This is being recorded? <laughs> I just want to say it. Um, um, okay, thank you. I'm speechless. I mean, all of you here at one point or another have um, impacted my life in a certain way and I just want to thank everyone for all the laughs, all the fun, and the joking, and the times of seriousness of being there for me or helping. What? I can hear you better. I'm already talking loud, I thought. I know I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, I just, um, outside of immediate family, I think of this group right here as my second family, and I just want to thank you all. I think I said it five times, but I'm really proud of you. Come on up, old, old church Pentecostal style. I just want you to come on up in here. We're going to lay hands on him, and we're going to pray going to take that coat off.
Get hands on him, Dad. You guys can move up. Does anybody want this microphone from me? Father, we thank you for the gift of a son, of a brother, of an adopted nephew, of a friend, of a childhood friend into adulthood. We ask, Father, that you cause surge in the Marine Corps to be a beacon of light, of light that is Christ in Christ's word, that you protect him, you protect his heart, you protect his soul. We thank you for his bravery. We thank you for his faithfulness and how you will use him in the years to come. And Father, as we send him, we send our own heart. And Father, we know that you will keep him because he, by your sovereign mercy, has been made dear to our hearts. You will keep him constantly on our hearts, not just this week or the next 12 weeks. But all the time, he is away. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fouler snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Jesus, you say that no greater love has anyone that they would lay down their life for their friend. We know that Sergio, by taking this step, he has already committed to that. He has committed to lay down his life for his friend when that time comes. And we know, Lord, it's because of what you have done in his heart to say that Christ is greater than his own life. Lord, let him, as he goes about his works, let him be a light shining on a hill when he is surrounded by darkness, that others may see his good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, let him do a mighty work in his labors. 
for this country, but in his heart, let him always remember that he is serving the God that he loves, the God that he has committed his life to, to glorify, to love, to worship, to serve. In that, let him find his strength each day, even as he grows weary or is tempted or whatever. Let him see Christ as his great reward, as his strength each day, one day at a time as he goes on this new journey. Bless him, protect him, keep him. Let your face shine upon him each and every day as he looks into the face of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your word, which is forever settled in heaven. Lord, by your word, we understand that the worlds were created out of nothing. By your word, Lord, you formed a people for yourself. By your word, you saved the ungodly. You justify, you sanctify, you glorify your people by your word. And it is by your word that we see light. And so I ask and pray that Serge would really be a man of the Word of God that richly dwells within him so that he might with all wisdom instruct and counsel and comfort those around him believer or non-believer by your word Lord Amen Okay. Okay, someone get off the wires there. Thank you. All right. We're going to close. You can stand around here, do whatever you want. But we're going to close singing with Sergio his favorite hymn. I think my wife needs this too, right, baby? Let's go. <laughs>